LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm Greg Moffat and my guest today is Keith Farnish, activist and author of Time's Up, An Uncivilized Solution to a Global Crisis. In the third instalment of our mini-series investigating the inevitable collapse of industrial civilization, Keith discusses some of the key issues raised in his book and just where our advanced but dangerously interdependent and precariously balanced global society is headed. Hello and welcome, Keith Farnish, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi there, good to talk to you. Now, Keith, <clears throat> today we're going to uh, talk mainly about some of the information and points uh, which you cover in your book, Time's Up, An Uncivilized Solution to a Global Crisis. And uh, if people are thinking, oh, what global crisis are you talking about? Well, I don't know where they've been living. But before we dive into that, perhaps you could just tell us something about your personal background and the journey that you've been on um, from, you know, fairly conventional uh, work life, conventional guy, through to where you are now with your writing and your activism, just how you've gone from, from that one place to another. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it, it is a fairly conventional background. Um, the, we were never particularly poor. Um, we were never particularly rich. We, um, when I was younger, um, we had a hotel in Margate on the Kent coast and, I mean, they, they were lovely days, to be honest. I used to spend a lot of my time down there um, on the coast and just cycling around. Um, in, in a way, that's something I've sort of throughout my life tried to recapture that 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 idyll, that that, that um, sort of childhood um, childhood carelessness, where you where really that's something you don't want to you do, you don't want to worry about things that um, adults worry about. Um, and it turns out I end up worrying about all the things that hardly anyone worries about, which is ironic, really. But um, the rest of rest of my time up to when I discovered activism again was fairly conventional. Um, went to university, got a geography degree, um, started work in computing because it happened to be something I was good at, and probably about. 2000, um, I was starting to get itchy feet with regards to um, the, the state of the natural world. Um, I'd always had an awareness um, to a certain extent, um, but it was, I, I sort of wanted to do something. Um, got in touch, with a in touch with a local Greenpeace group, thought I was being really radical by sort of standing on corners and shouting and being sworn at um, and having hoses sprayed at me and generally being pushed around. But it's actually stood me in quite good stead because you, you 
work work out the thick skin and you start to realize that um, what people say is is out of a lack of understanding rather than genuine hatred of what you're doing. But it was only in, I suppose, 2006, 2007 was when I really started to realize that even the activism, which I now put in quotes, um, that I was doing was very much mainstream introduced to the works of Derek Jensen by a good friend of mine who was on a road protest camp in South End on Sea and also realized that almost all of the writing that was being done at the time and also most of the activism that was being carried out at the time was fruitless and not achieving anything like where we should be going. So I thought, well, I mean, I, I'm a fairly bright guy. I can try and work things out. And um, I suddenly realized I'd sort of got it um, in about 2007. And I realized I had to put this down into paper, left my job and started work on the book, the first book. And that during that period of writing, that's when all of the ideas about um, connection and um, the, the 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 sheer goodness of actually bringing down the industrial system, which is something that most people consider to, or so most civilized people consider to be abhorrent. Um, it, it, it all became, it all eventually became a completely logical thing. So where I am now is, well, I, I, I know that very soon in, certainly in, in the time of the human span, um, industrial civilization will be gone. Um, it, it's, it's how it's gone. I think that is significant now. Yeah, well, I mean, industrial civilization is the the global crisis, basically, that you refer to in the, in the sort of the subtitle of the book. And you know, anyone who has got any sense to you know, look around them and see what's happening understands that industrial civilization is in crisis. Um, but uh, the people, for example, you spoke about who would have you know heckled you and abused you when you were. Uh, on green protests, um, as you said, it was more of a lack of understanding where they were coming from than than actual um, an active hatred of you or you know what you stood for. And part of it is this um, unwillingness, this deep psychological unwillingness to really face the situation that we're in and the problems that are, we're lining up for ourselves, the problems that we're actually living through now, and where that's going to take us. And basically, people can't conceive of industrial civilization that most of us in, in the in the West um, have enjoyed for you know so, so many generations. They can't conceive of that going away. However, it's in crisis, it is going away. And in the book, you not only address this, but you say we would be better off if we actually took this thing apart now, if we prepared for its end and started to take it down now then, then wait for it to fall apart. And, you know, and the ramifications of that would be so much worse rather than if we just 
act positively no yes that's right um yeah i mean it's i make i tend to make assumptions and you have to make assumptions um it's 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 like it's like if you walk up to someone in the street and you start talking to them you assume that they can that they can understand what you're about to say just on a purely linguistic basis um and if they start speaking another language then it sort of takes you back for a bit until you adjust to that um there's a couple of assumptions i make certainly in times up i make the assumption that people do accept that anthropogenic global warming is is a scientific fact and um it's something that is fundamentally changing what we're doing which fundamentally changing what's the state of the earth's ecology um the, the i move forward in that with the new book which is um the, the assumption that industrial civilization has to go um and that's a, that's a that's a huge assumption and it it's it's all it's self um it's self-defeating in a way because my market gra- rapidly shrinks in terms of readership um i've never sought to make any money out of these books for um, just as an aside um they've always been released um on a under a creative commons license so anyone can read them and and use them and abuse them uh in whatever way they like as long as they don't try and make money out of them so so financially there's nothing in it for me um but i would like to use the market with a small m to to try and get this across to as many people as possible who are at least are in a position of um uh, of being ready to make a change whether that's a personal change whether it's a change in their community whether that's a change um in the way they affect other people and um the wider system industrial systems in general um it's it is it's it, it's a really difficult balancing act you, and and I've decided sod it I, I'm not going to try and balance I'm going to say this is what I mean this is what I feel and and we've just got to face this 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 is going down and uh, which whichever way we look at it now at the root of the problem is basically an energy crisis um it's energy that's allowed industrial civilization to be built uh, energy in the form of millions of years of stored sunlight as mm. they call it uh, fossil fuels and lots of people will be aware that we you know energy is a major issue at the moment you know what are we going to do the oil but even if people don't subscribe to the notion of peak oil uh, they're aware that uh, oil is becoming harder to find and harder to get hold of when it is found and renewables are not thus far really living up to their promise but they know they know that something needs to be done but they're not quite sure what and they're looking to other people basically to do it as always the government will think of it you know they'll sort it out um but in your book you don't actually dive straight in there uh, most um literature i've read on this topic starts with that basic premise and that's you know the chapter one um you actually uh, first section of your book is quite interesting it's called the scale of the problem and you spend quite a lot of time talking about viruses and bacteria and, and nematodes and it's quite unusual original way to um to approach the whole issue but in doing so you actually get the reader to start thinking about certain issues perhaps 
without realizing that they're thinking about them. And then when you eventually do turn to uh, the issue of climate change and of the energy situation, you've kind of prepped people's uh, thinking uh, somewhat by, by doing that. So perhaps you could tell us uh, why you started the book out that way. What I wanted to try and do is to try and get people to understand how things affected them. Um, because what we do, one mistake that the vast majority of environmental writers and commentators make is, oh, look at this thing that's happening over there. Isn't it terrible? And what they failed to do is focus that on what matters the most to the human beings, which is essentially yourselves. I mean, I, if, some, if I was, if, if, this, if the thing was hurtling out of the sky and I thought it was going to hit me, then I'd gone, the, my first instinct is to get out of the way. Um, and so, and, that, and that's, of course, that, that's survival. I mean, that, that's, that's evolutionary, that's instinctive. So the way, to, the way to try to get people to understand the severity of the situation is to try and help them to understand how it's going to affect them. Um, the idea of the different scales, it was, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a way of making it look interesting, but also it was a, it was a, a journey for me as well. I didn't know a lot about viruses. I didn't know a lot about, I knew almost nothing about nematodes. Um, and there were other areas I looked at. Um, I was actually suggested the, 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 the bees um, chapter was suggested to me by someone else because they had read this quote about if all the honeybees went, then then there'll be no more food, which is just patent nonsense, as I found out. Um, so, so I wanted to discover this myself. So in a way, it's. I wanted to go through the same journey as the reader would go through when they were reading this. Oh, this is actually quite interesting. I didn't know this. Um, and some, uh, someone described it as a genuine page turner because they wanted to find out what was going to happen next. So, so it was, it was, a, it was a nice thing to write about, um, albeit in, in a particularly gruesome way in many cases, because, because it was interesting, but it does bring about the point that everything that we do as a civilized society um, has a negative impact on us as human beings at every scale. And that was the point I was trying to make because we come down to our basic instincts, which are to survive. And we have to try and make a connection, which is where this sort of revelatory moment came to me sometime in 2007 standing in a shower um going oh yeah that makes sense and and realizing that the problem the reason that no one had done anything was because people didn't actually make that connection between what was happening and how it was going to affect them and there was something stopping that happening and and i come to that later on in the book but there were these pieces were coming together. Yes, well, in uh, in talking about all of this, uh, one thing that um, kind of leads on from it and it has relevance to is the fact that uh, the, the, the systems that we have are actually very vulnerable. 
um, the, the market economy uh, that's been built up, our system of commerce, and uh, even our politics uh, all discourage um, diversity. And this makes them very, very vulnerable to uh, collapse, basically. And this puts us in a, you know, we've built a castle on a uh, on sand, really. Mm. Well, it's when you alluded to peak oil earlier on and, and energy density, um, the, the, the fact that we can dig things out of the earth and burn them, and effectively that's that's thousands and thousands of years of sunlight. Um, I mean, it's such a bizarre thing. Civilization is an, is a really bizarre. It's a, it's a it's a megalomaniac idea that you can pull all this stuff into one place. Which I mean, civilization is down to brass tacks. The idea of civilization is predicated on the creation of cities, uh, the city state, the the the, um, the agglomeration of, of of thousands, millions of people in one place with um, mass, um, the mass importation of energy, food, um, oil, etc., into where all these people are living, and then the exportation of all the crap that's left out of that city-state or that city um, into effectively out of sight, out of mind zone. Um, and that can sort of work if it's on a a fairly small scale. So civilizations historically going back many thousands of years, um, the Incan, Aztec, Mayan, um, even even um, American Indians, the, there were, the tribes had civilization to a certain extent. There were the um, the there were these sort of city type areas. Um, so, but they didn't have this massive effect on the environment in general because they were isolated, because they were um, they, they were limited to fairly small area. Where you've got industrial civilization and it's a global phenomenon, that's where civilization reaches its its um, terminal limits because you can't bring things in from somewhere that is within where you are already you can't push things out to where there's there is nowhere to push things out um so we're sort of nibbling at the edges still with the forests and digging down to try and find things as far down under the under the ground as possible and with with lower and lower energy densities and and it's, it's all really it's, it's all really going wrong because um that with an increasing population, and particularly a population that is becoming increasingly civilized and industrialized, uh, there just isn't that energy density anymore. And anyone who says to you, oh, it's okay because we can get it all from solar energy, or we can get it from um, wave power or wind power, it, it's, um, to be quite frank, it's bollocks because the energy is not dense enough to fulfill the original aims of civilization, um, you cannot get that amount of power um, from these low density forms of energy that you did from coal and oil. And that's one reason, just purely from an energy point of view, that civilization will collapse because there won't be enough energy to prop it up. 
Um, in terms of economies, I mean, the global financial economy is built on a myth. It's, it, it is the, the ultimate Tower of Babel because there is nothing underneath. There's nothing propping it up. It's not like you've got all this gold in huge bank vaults. What you've got is debt. And all of the global markets now trade on debt, whether that be government debt, corporate debt, things like um, swaps, um, so interest rates. What's the, it's just nonsense. And having come out of the financial industry, I was working in a financial, financial organization for um, eight years and just... I was goggled constantly by the sheer amount of so-called money that went through these computer systems, but there was never actually anything there. It was just data. Um, and the global economy is data. It's, well, not, it's, it's, not, it's not tangible. No, I mean, the, the global financial system, as I see it, has not only contributed to many of the problems we face, but it's, it's facilitated them. A lot of the systems natural systems particularly but also man-made ones that have got out of control um that has been allowed to happen because of the nature of money and the nature of the financial system i mean you said you're coming from a, f a financial background i mean i find widespread ignorance in the general populace about what money is and how the financial system works i mean is that level of ignorance even like reflected within the financial industry? I sometimes think that it, it must be that otherwise, how could people in banks or, or other financial institutions go to their work knowing that this is it's all just baloney, funny money out of thin air, nothing? <laughs> well, people in banks still get mortgages. They still buy cars mm -hmm. on HP and things like that. And they know that this is all they wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for debt. Um so, yes, I mean, it, 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 the illusion is still very much there, but it's not just that. Um, it's um, there is this there is this phrase that's used. It, it's been it's been worded in many different ways, but essentially it's um, having a job allows you this level of ignorance. It, the fact that you have a job, you're doing something, it allows you to deny the impact of what you're doing because ultimately you want to keep that job. So if your job is based on running a bit of the global financial system, then of course you will make sure you are in ignorance of the impact of that system on, on society, on the natural environment. And I mean, you, of course, you can take this down to far more obvious examples. Like if you if you happen to be a person who is um, responsible for cutting trees down in uh, and in a, an area in which there is a deep and complex ecology where there are indigenous people who, who may not have been contacted, they are the people who do that. Are, they can do that because they have this denial in their heads, constant denial that the, what they're doing is intrinsically fine um, because they're just doing their job. And of course, we've heard that phrase throughout history many, many times. The fact that people say that doing your job is something that justifies the destruction that results from it, however indirect or direct that is, that is simply a tool of disconnection.
and it's allowing people to disconnect from that, from what they do, disconnect the act of what they're doing from the impact of what uh, of the job that they do. Um, then there is a mental disconnect there as well as a physical disconnect um, because of course the way the corporations are structured um, the your it allows you as say a CEO of a corporation to be able to make commands to to give orders from the top and disconnect you from the impact of what happens at the bottom and the same in the military um, you can be a general and you can say right X number of people are going to go in and they're going to give their lives and I mean it's, it's a it's, it's a very it's just an interesting aside the fact that you've got all these poor soldiers getting killed in Afghanistan at the moment um, but they're being killed on behalf of a system on behalf of a political ideology um, so I it's it's I the sanctity of life is very much something that I that I hold very dear um, the the ability to take life at the sweep of a pen is something I find utterly abhorrent um, which is what motivates me to to do the things I do it's not because I don't like people I love people it's because I don't like what civilization is doing to people mm. well you mentioned corporations and uh it's interesting how i mean the corporation could almost be you know an analog for society as a whole in the way that we're behaving uh in the sense that uh you know there's almost like no one in charge you know the, the corporation is this entity and behaves in a certain way society the same it's like there's no one in charge no one that you can no individual you can point to but yet there somehow is you know in a corporation you have the ceo but that person can you know that person can leave someone else to come and take their place and the behavior of the corporation can largely stay the same it was a bit like what happened with enron when that collapsed taking so many people's investments and savings with it it was almost like it wasn't any human being that did this it was enron that did it but it, you know yet and all that was made up as all corporations and as society is that was made up of individuals but it seems there's this collective mass behavior that absolves us of responsibility and yeah so certainly yeah. we look at the society we see that yeah there's a good there's a very good book I was actually um there, there was actually a documentary about it and I, I, I only stumbled upon it by accident but uh, a book I used as a source source was by Ronald Wright a short history history of progress and it's an excellent book um, but he uses the analogy of the conveyor belt and of being people coming onto and off the conveyor belt of um, power. Um, there is no one person that's in charge, as you say. There is a there is um, this higher echelon of people that that can temporarily take power and carry out orders on behalf of um, civil society, but really. Um, it's more of a mythology. It's it's this fact that there is this thing that we all believe in, which is the which is the the greatness of civilization and how it's the ultimate um, the the ultimate expression of humanity. Whereas really, it's just the ultimate expression of a possible latent destruction that may be within human beings, but has only been it is only manifested itself because 
we've allowed hierarchy to exist but in societies that have actually existed for far longer than any civilization will that hierarchy is very ephemeral it's it's a temp it's something that only happens when it's needed so civilized society um is a is a freak it, it's not something that is naturally human and corporations are 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 well, they're both macrocosms and microcosms of society because you could say that um, civil society is just a corporation. Most governments are corporations in effect. Yes. Uh, it, it's it, it, it's really it's just it's just another way of it's just a word really of of describing uh, the way something functions. Yeah, well, if people want to grasp this issue um, a bit more uh, tightly, there's a a documentary film i can't remember who directed but it's simply called the corporation yeah uh, and that that sets it out all rather neatly you were talking about the um hierarchy as being sort of a, a anomalous rather than necessary and if we look at indigenous societies um which there probably was nothing but indigenous societies you know ten thousand years ago and beyond um you could correct there that they had a hierarchy only ever came into place as required and they would have, might have different leaders at different times. If a leader was required, it would be sort of a meritocracy. It would be, okay, you lead us today because we need a leader today and we need someone with your abilities. Yeah. And uh, But that wouldn't, crucially, leadership in that sort of society didn't confer a lot of material benefits to the leaders. And that's something quite different from the situation we have today. No, it conferred risk in some cases. Your responsibility. Your yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're... If you're responsible for it, it, it's it's almost like saying, oh, right. Well, well, you're a general. You've got to go and fight with 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 with, with the men and, and down on the down on the battlefield. And, and what general would say, yep, that's fine. I'll go off and do that. Well, there, there have been one or two um, one or two examples of that um, in the Crimea, for instance. But but in the main, if someone who's a leader in civilized society does not take the risk that the ordinary people that are acting on their behalf do and if you're i mean the the sheer egalitarianism that that in all its forms that exists in indigenous societies for instance the the enhanced role of women when it comes to um, lean times in terms of food um i mean it, it's it, there's this funny thing it's almost like it, it's this idea of the male psyche um, being the the breadwinner and the proud bringer home of the of, of whatever happens to have been slaughtered, and meanwhile the meanwhile the women have rustled up this fantastic meal, and they've been looking after the kids, and they've been making sure that everything's safe, and they've been um, making medicines and storing food and all of these other things. It's it does go to show that um, that civilized society really has its it's it's got its head screwed on backwards when it comes to equality well quite now um you all you, in the book you address um issues that people will be familiar with um for example the state of the, the you know environment specifically the oceans and uh, fish stocks um forests depletion there and you know the, the green parts of the planet are so important uh, as a carbon sink so that all relates back into climate change again and then you look at some of the fixes that we're trying to apply to this specifically 
synthetic biology in the form of gene genetic modification. Mm. And um, you point out that uh, in all these areas, we have an impact way out of proportion to our um, our size almost um, compared to other you know life forms on the planet. And that while we're sort of we prove to be very adaptable over the millennia, um, uh, we're highly not only are our systems vulnerable, but we are very vulnerable to ecosystem changes. And they've been set in train now and uh, almost like a, you know, a house of cards or dominoes. And one is triggering another and feeding into another. And we're undergoing a lot of those ecosystem changes now. And that in itself is going to be part of whatever we do actively or whatever we can do with technology. There's a lot of things in motion now that are going to be they're, they're going to unfold regardless. They're unstoppable and they will affect us profoundly. Mm. It's been it, it's been shown time and time again that um, the more complex a society is, the more vulnerable it is to change. Um, complexity in, in societies um, tends to create its own um, its own um, fragility um, because something because in order to create that complexity or to create all these layers, you have to have weak points. Whereas societies that we would see, see as, as primitive are actually far more adaptable. Um, I mean, even some, even down to something as simple as, as um, possessions. I mean, if you've got if you've got a house full of possessions, how easy is it going to be for you to suddenly to suddenly say, right, I'm, I've got to move. I've got to go to a place that's got more food um, or is safer. You can't just stick that in a bag and run away. Um, well, that's exactly what most indigenous societies have the facility of doing. They can just stick things in a bag or on their back and go somewhere else. So that makes them more adaptable. Um, human beings in general, I mean, we've, we've got to... Uh, distinguish between um, the types of life that are able to generate energy um, by the direct, not by consumption, but directly from fundamental um, sources such as the sun. So a plant, for instance, is able to generate energy directly from the sun, whereas humans have to consume plants. So we're secondary consumers. That makes us vulnerable. And um, I put in the this I put in this picture of this empty beach, which has got um, there are various life forms, types of bacteria that may be able to that can feed off the raw materials of the beach. Um, there are things life there's life in the sea. There's, for instance, there's algae in the sea that are able to um, photosynthesize and grow, whereas the human on the beach, where there is nothing obvious to consume that human is bound to die so that makes us very vulnerable to change and that's something we have to be aware of i mean you only have to put someone um somewhere where they have no food and more fundamentally where they have a have source of water this is the rule of threes the weather three minutes without air three days without water three weeks without food we are pretty vulnerable we're not like a we're not like a snake who only needs to eat once every few weeks. Well, I think, think it's the, you know, most people understand that there are enormous changes happening in the world and, you know, in society. And it's whether you live in the 
modern industrialized west or whether you're still you know you're living in a third world country with a you know a relatively primitive uh lifestyle that you know their changes are happening some are just happening because that's the environment some we've caused and there are you know uh, stresses coming into them the completely artificial man-made systems but i think it's the enormity of it that prevents a lot of people from even thinking about it never mind thinking about what it might mean and what they could do in response and I mean, I was on a train the other day and there was a, a problem with it and we all had to get off and go to another train. And then there was actually, that was wrong as well. So we had to get off and go to, and this all caused about 15 minutes of delay. But I mean, there's no problem, you know, unless you're desperate to get somewhere, a bit of a problem maybe, but really in the grand scheme of things, not a problem. But I was just stood to one side in all this and just watching certain individuals in the, you know, this is maybe a group of a hundred people who were beside themselves. Mm-hmm you know, purple with rage and they were going to write letters and they'd never been treated this way. And it was such a simple little nothing. And these people have got food, they've got beds for the night, they've got shelter, they've got jobs. You know, they're living, you know, large compared to a lot of people on this planet. And yet that little inconvenience was enough to just, you know, almost push them over the edge. And I think if you then look out at the real problems in the world and where things are headed and what we need to do to try and survive as a species... That it's so vast that it's just too much. So it's better just to keep your head down and keep going, even if you're going to walk over a cliff. Yeah, um, I mean, it is a it is a, a mental survival mechanism in many ways to try and block out the the most serious problems and focus on the trivial. Um, I mean, certainly in my case, I, I try not to think of um, quotes environmental issues anymore. Um, I've, I've, I've done that. I've worried about it. I've, I've stressed about it and I realize that it's happening and I don't want to see any more news, to be quite honest, because I know what's happening and it's going to screw my head up if I worry about it. My way of dealing with it is to do stuff. It's not just write about stuff, I actually go out and do stuff practically. Um, but it's not just this personal ability to block things out. It is probably more powerfully the ability of civilization to make sure that people are not aware of what's happening um, to create that denial in people's heads such that everything is all right we will make it fine we are politicians we are companies everything's going to be fine if you've got x y and z and this level of denial is terminal because that will lead to the termination of humanity as as we know it eventually if we don't do something about it so and and, and that makes civilization fundamentally a, a dysfunctional it is not something that was ever meant to persist quite how it's managed to persist for so long is simply down to the availability as you said of cheap energy and through this cheap energy Power systems are created, not just these, not just guns and wep- weapons of other types, but also power systems such as television. Television is an incredibly powerful force. It allows people to be to be put in stasis while they watch the goings on of some other person or some other thing in the form of entertainment, and they really care about what's on television. And and that allows people to be inert. I mean, if you can plonk someone in front of, um, 
in front of some talent show for the rest of their life and make sure they're fed and watered, then as, as, as far as they're concerned, they'll be pretty happy. And, and, and you, can't, you can't say to people, well, you're not happy. Well, actually, they are. And, and you've, if you've got the X Factor and you've got um, Pop Idol or American Idol or anything like this going on, in the, going on in the background, well, quite frankly, that's all that many people desire now because of the level of, because of, of the power of these systems over, over humanity as a whole. It's not, we don't care. We're not connected to the real world anymore. And that's why we don't care. And, and that's why we don't give us stuff and why we don't do anything about it. Um, well, one of the, I mean, it's a small positive, but it, I still feel overall it's a positive that's happening at the moment and seems to have accelerated since the global financial crash of 2008 is that people are, some people are starting to associate uh, less uh, consumption with happiness Mm -hmm. um, because they see sort of people's overall levels of happiness and they actually have this thing called the happiness index, um, which are various um, uh, factors that it measures. And um, so we're seeing people are one manifestation of it is people are valuing experiences more than necessarily things now. Um, so I don't know if that's perhaps in the, all of that. There's the seeds of a, an awakening to the fact that um this system isn't delivering equality and benefits for everyone across the board, and it isn't making us happier overall. In fact, it may be doing quite the opposite. Well, you did, I think you may have made some interesting connections there by what you said. Um, the, the, the fact that there, there has been and, and is still continuing a global financial quotes crisis, which, um, to be quite honest, is a great thing because if you only look at it from the terms of um, greenhouse gas emissions, there is a direct correlation between economic activity and greenhouse gas emissions. So a an economic crisis is an ecological benefit because there are fewer greenhouse gas emissions, there's less destruction that takes place. Um, but also by having a less, a less vibrant, less powerful economy, people are, are less controlled. Um, yeah, in some cases, an economic collapse can lead to martial law. It can lead to state control based on based on more obvious forms of power, such as such as weaponry, um, such as a police state. Yeah, that can happen. But overall, I would say that we've got a situation where people are being less controlled. Therefore, they're able to think for themselves a bit more. So this happiness index, which incidentally originated in, in Bhutan, in the, in the Himalayas, um, this is something that, I mean, it's a bit of an artificial construct because you can't really um, quantify happiness in any way. And as I said, the person sitting in front of the TV watching X Factor is happy as far as they're concerned. Um, but overall happiness is directly linked to the level of contact people have with the real world, the natural world, and that deep happiness is something that can only be get, can only be um, affected by um, 
by that contact, by that connection. And that, and that, that also applies to other people as well. I mean, if you're, you're, you need to be connected to other people. Um, the, the, the survivalist who goes off and out into the mountains in Wyoming or wherever um, and, and says, well, I'm going I'm to live for myself and I'm going to survive, apart from the fact they're very unlikely to survive for very long on their own, is going to be utterly miserable after a short while because they don't have contact with other human beings. Um, and, and that's absolutely necessary. Communities are, are, are fundamental to happiness as well. And I do see a growth in communities as the global economy is collapsing because people are naturally gravitating to this much more natural state, which is to gather as smaller groups of people. Yeah, so there's a sort of rise of localism, isn't there? Whether it's, uh, you know, uh, I say um, economics is one of my pet subjects and I see a, a, a great deal of uh, happening on the local currency front and alternative currency front, mm. uh, not just as a protectionist thing to try and get through tough times, but as, you know, as a proactive, positive way um, to, to, yeah. you know, to, to benefit people and what they're doing locally. Um, I think when a lot of people contemplate the enormity of some of the problems that industrial society is facing and perhaps begin to have suggested to them some of the things that might help the situation, their initial reaction is, oh, that means I lose my job. That means such and such factory closes down. That means that I don't get a new car every two years. Mm -hmm. And they start to think in these materialistic terms. Um, but, you know, there is a, a, a new way of thinking about these things, which is actually quite ancient. And all, you know, spiritual traditions have it. All indigenous peoples have this understanding that to, to have less and to do less isn't necessarily poverty. It can actually be a new type of wealth that was actually an old type of wealth, you know, before industrial civilization came along in the first place to deliver all these baubles to us and tell us that that in fact was meaning that was happiness and that's what life was supposed to be about yeah you need i mean to be fair you do need a safety net for for people who are totally dependent on what civilization gives them so for instance if people lose their job and that's their form of income and they and and income as far as the vast majority of people are concerned is money um I mean, alternative currencies only, are only really relevant, are only really alternative if, if, if they're not a form of cash exchange. So there has to be something at a much more fundamental level, such as bartering and an even more fundamental level, just giving and being given things in exchange for, well, one day someone might do you a favour, maybe they won't. Well, it doesn't actually matter because we're a community and we work together. And that may seem a bit idealistic, but to be honest, the cash exists because people don't trust each other. If we trusted each other, we wouldn't need cash. Um, I mean, I promised to pay the bearer on demand the sum of, which is on all, all banknotes, or in other words, um, is essentially saying, I don't trust you. So this piece of paper is saying you're going to pay me at some point the value of this piece of paper so yeah we come back to we've got to create some kind of structure and and however crude that seems or some kind of something that's obviously it's far more organic and it, it's um it's something that humans do naturally anyway so that people have something to fall back on so even though people do lose a job they still 
have things, they can still be looked after. They still have some form of medical care. They still have um, food, you know, basics, food, shelter, um, companionship, um, warmth. That Those things have to be in place before you can actually say, right, that's it. You've got no job. Um, but of course, that's not how we view things as civil society. We have to have the things that have been put in place. We have to um, comply with whatever rules are in place. So you're not a person as far as civil society is concerned. You're not a, a valid member of society unless you vote, you go shopping, you've got a job and you watch telly um, and and things get added to it all the time. You're not on the internet, therefore you're a nothing. Um, oh, well, what have you got? Oh, well, I've got the latest iPhone. Oh, what have you got? I mean, I've got a crappy Nokia lying around somewhere, I think, which makes me less of a person. But actually, I quite like it because I can make phone calls occasionally. Um, so it's, it's, it's all... It, there's a lot of relativism in this. They, I mean, you, the last thing you should do is is feel jealous that someone has more stuff than you. You should be jealous because someone is happier than you, and and that's quite an. It's quite nice to to, at the same time, look down on someone and look up to them, because society is telling you to look down on someone who doesn't have much, but um you're but as a human being you're looking up to them because they've got something you can really aspire to which is happiness and contentment well now the collapse of industrial society is not going to happen overnight probably um it's, mm. a, it's a step down process which has been underway for some time and we see that uh you know as you know, industries initially outsourced to other countries from you know western industrialized nations and then eventually the, the underpinnings for that industry go away altogether and that, you know, no matter where you take it, you know, India, China, whatever, that eventually goes away, that the official response, government response to this is very much in terms of um, the system as it is, you know, you know, fixes with whether it's the monetary system or it's all sticking plasters, not really dealing with the, the problem long term. Mm-hmm. And there's some other responses to it happening um, outside of official systems like the if people in the UK, certainly, and I'm sure this is happening elsewhere, want to go and look up the transition town movement, um, people who are actually looking ahead in the medium to long term about where things are going and what they can do to prepare for that. However, and you do address this in the book, and it's a, it's a kind of a thorny subject that uh, is contentious and controversial. Can we really see this change being managed over the next few generations, the next couple of hundred years? with the population as it is right now because when we look at things that could be done and how things could be put on a more stable footing in the long term it's like yeah we can do x y and z but we can't do it with seven billion people Mm. i I would definitely agree that we that there have to be fewer people um it's it is a horrible thing to think about because um the this is what's been quoted a lot. This when when I and I said quite categorically, when civilization collapses, there will be massive death, and you and no one can deny that because because people are dependent on civilization. They've been made dependent on it, um, and that's it's a horrible thing to contemplate. But it's a reality that will have to be contemplated because it's going to happen. What I would like. To 
happen is for us to be able to somehow manage that uh, so that you take away the things that are far less important but try and sustain the things that are more fundamental to our survival so we can take away television for instance i mean take away advertising we can take away all, all the things that revolve around around high finance and commerce um they they you can get rid of those i mean they're, they're really not that important um, you can take away the vast majority of government systems because, again, they're all about power and control and corporatocracy. Um, things you can't necessarily take away straight away are medical care, food distribution. Um, you can't take away sewerage and ways of keeping water clean because we have the because we have this population density, which unfortunately is dependent on a lot of the systems that are in place um, if they collapsed overnight if for instance the whole water purification system was no longer able to function then there would be utter devastation um, so we have to have a view to maintaining something like that until we get to a situation where we don't need something like that and part of that is reducing the population and certainly the population density um, high density populations require complex systems um, cities are incredibly complex cities require high density solutions to things and um, unless people are more spread out then they need to be maintained fewer people is something that we have to be looking towards and um, I would I would much rather have a voluntary system, a voluntary system, that's the wrong word, a voluntary move towards having fewer children um, over the short to medium term and then have collapse leading to um, leading to mass die off. It's if that's a horrible situation and we one way of avoiding it is by having fewer people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's seen as sort of anti-human, isn't it, almost to talk about having less children even though it's talking about having less not about having none mm. and i think it's just because our, our very sort of human centric um you know we're very narcissistic and self-centered and you know we're the 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 you know the, the pinnacle of evolution and we we dominate the planet quite rightly and in some people's eyes you know god-given right to dominate the planet so putting us into a more humble um perspective in terms of the rest of the life on the planet um is not something that, that people readily do. But there's a section in, in your book, uh, Time's Up, just to remind people we're discussing, uh, where you actually apply some tests to humanity's significance. Mm -hmm. And uh, not to say for one minute that we're not we're a very significant form of life, even if only because of the effect that we have. But it's interesting that you do, I think it's ecological, cultural and personal criteria you apply and you, you come to some interesting conclusions. And, uh, you know, perhaps we're not all that we thought we were. Yeah, I, it was something I wanted to I wanted to try and come back to this idea that what matters is what matters to us. And one way of doing that is by looking at it from different angles. Um, so from an ecological point of view, it is quite clear that humans, although we can ha we have a vast negative effect on the ecologies, what civilized humans, I want to make very clear, have a vast negative effect on the areas that they occupy. Indigenous cultures, in the main, have been able to occupy the areas in which they live 
because they don't have a negative effect, because they live in harmony with a natural environment. So leaving aside the people that are actually connected to the real world, civilized humans, we we just don't have much significance from an ecological perspective. Things don't feed on us until we die and rot away um, in civilized society. Um, we're, we're at the top of the food chain, middle of the food web, whatever, however we want to describe it. If we went, there would be a net positive effect on the global ecology. So that makes us irrelevant. I wouldn't say irrelevant, but very unimportant in terms of if we went. Um, and it would be very important to the world as a whole if we did go, because, because things would be better for the rest of life. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is cultural. So how does society view humans in general? Yeah, society views humanity, or rather society views itself. Civilization thinks civilization is the most important thing. However, when you look at the way civilization treats individual people, sends them to war, uses them in slave labor, treats them as shoddily as it can possibly get away with to the extent that people are given the very minimum they need to be happy, the very minimum they need to survive. There, people are only permitted certain levels of freedom to the point at which they get genuinely free. And at the point they get genuinely free, then that freedom has to be pushed back because they start making their own minds up about what society they want to live in. So actually, as far as civilization is concerned, human beings are relatively unimportant. It's civilization that's important to civilization. But actually, when you look at what matters to us as an individual, we matter most of all because I mean, we've come, I've been, I've been told many times on various forums and I've been, I've read many times, well, isn't it terrible, it, regardless of whether humans on the earth, um, that this thing is dying out? Well, actually, do we care about what's going on on other planets from a day-to-day -day point of view? No, because we're not part of that ecology. And in actual fact, unless we are physically connected in some way to the the goings on of an ecology, then what happens to that ecology doesn't matter. So you take humans out of the equation, you take our consciousness away from something, that something no longer matters. So it's really important to look to to, to take this anthropocentric point of view because it allows us to realize what matters to us and, and really what matters is the is ourselves is our families the people we care about they are the the fundamental drivers behind all we do naturally as human beings and the reason that humans in our natural state care about the world around us is because that world around us is 
maintaining us it's allowing us to survive because if it, if that world if that ecology wasn't vibrant if it didn't if it wasn't functioning at its maximum potential then we wouldn't be able to use it to allow us to survive and that sounds terribly selfish but that's reality so from a biological point of view from an individual point of view what matters is us mm. um yeah we're kind of the ultimate you know surviving machine um as i said earlier very adaptable even though you know, paradoxically we're undermining um, our ability to survive hmm. in the medium to long term something you said a moment ago actually reminded me uh, people might care to if they haven't already um check out a book called uh, The World Without Us, which is by a guy called Alan Wiseman. And it's a really interesting perspective on if uh, humanity were sort of uh, hoovered up off the planet overnight, um, what might happen on the earth in the ensuing centuries. And it's surprisingly business as usual for everything mm -hmm. else on the planet. In fact, almost everything else on the planet has a huge boost and sees great benefits <laughs> from the fact yeah. Uh, that we're not here, but we are here, and you know, whatever the origins of humanity, there's something something amazing is happening, and we have a lot more potential, I think, than uh, than we understand, and certainly that we, than that which we've explored. But we do have a um, a vital disconnection with, um, or we have developed one with the world around us and the systems, um, you know, which we're dependent on. And I, 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 can I just pick you up on that point? Yeah, yeah sure. There's a there's a slightly there's a slightly um, civilized viewpoint there in this idea that we have to aspire to something else, have to have potential. Does it actually, as as human as non-civilized human beings, our potential goes as far as whether we can get something to eat in the next few days? Um, in our natural environment, in indigenous societies. Um, aspiration is almost unknown this idea that we have to aspire to something greater we have to be more monolithic we have to have we have to somehow put down our mark in order to show that we are more important than something else that really doesn't exist so um yes human beings do have something that is unique Perhaps maybe we haven't discovered that in other other animals because we we haven't we've only looked from our point of view, but we do have to be careful about suggesting that there is something in humans that is more than we're currently doing. I would say maybe less is more, and our potential is to live as as long term surviving communities in as non in as low impact a way as possible and maybe that's that's enough yeah no no point taken keith that's, that's, a, that's a that is a very good point and i wasn't when i said potential i wasn't necessarily thinking of you know in material ways of of uh building and and, and being and leaving a mark behind just simply that in and this is subject for another debate entirely but in my study of the origin of of man and and our uh, you know, evolution or otherwise, we just seem to be, there seems to be so much more there than is necessary just for a creature that, that lives a, you know, hunter-gatherer type lifestyle, hand-to-mouth, um, day-to-day with no real 
concerns or aspirations or thoughts for the future. It just it just seems that we're built differently to that. Well, that's there, all. There, there have been studies carried out on what's, what caused the evolution of the brain, um, why we've got such vast cerebrums, which are the large hemispheres left and right. Um, and and it does seem to be put down to meat eating, um, that we adapted a, a, a more carnivorous lifestyle in certain parts of the world. And that increased increased level of protein, that concentrated protein, um, manifested itself in, la in larger brains and more complex structures in certain areas. So it may be that, that, that ironically, although something, although in indigenous societies, meats forms generally forms quite a small part. It's something like 15 percent mm -hmm. um, in society where where societies have adapted a, a more meat-rich lifestyle, that could be the root of civilized tendencies. And that, and the irony really is, of course, that the more meat you require, the more, the more um, environmental destruction you, that's needed. And because really, ecologies with any 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 great human density can't support those human beings that have got a a very meat rich lifestyle so so almost like the the things that civilization does begat civilization and and humanity in its in its more in its less carnivorous form and i'm not this isn't some kind of manifesto for veganism but it's it's less in its less carnivorous form is is probably closer to our natural state. Oh, that's interesting. I've not actually read that before. Um, quite surprised that I haven't really. If, if that's a, if that's one of the, you know, it's, strands it's worth, of thought. Yeah, I haven't I haven't got the references to hand, but um, certainly it's something that's come up in. It's quite recent. Um, quite recent. Um, 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 anthropological studies have found a link between the size of brain and the and meat consumption and the ability to work to the ability they desire almost to form hierarchical societies and other more more complex structures well yeah okay to to uh, link back to what um what i was saying earlier about you know we have developed this uh, enormous disconnect with um the world around us and the systems that support us and in the book, um, you basically make it its kind of a dualism that we're, we're kind of stuck with at the minute that you point out that we have to reconnect. But then you point out some of the powerful forces that are under the banner of why can't we reconnect some of the powerful forces that are preventing us from doing that. And this will be a familiar and rather dismal rule call uh, for anybody who uh, studies world events. It, it's not a complex process making connection it's actually something that happens very naturally and if you can somehow rid yourself of the things that stop you connecting it rushes into you in 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 a very visceral way um and we've all experienced this to a certain extent um in 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 situations where we've really felt to, i mean to use the phrase at peace or or in a at one with with the rest of the world I mean, that that's what i mean by connection um the things that stop us connecting are essentially all of the things that make up civilized society because society civilized society can't exist unless we're in this state of denial about what we're doing and there are various tools of disconnection 
um, that I've described and I have expanded upon them later on in the second book simply because I didn't I hadn't finished my thinking on it but I mean to um, hierarchy is one that we've been through I mean the ability to impose authority upon others um, that allow the ensure that the people at the bottom of the chain um, are disconnected from what they're doing um, authority is an incredibly powerful thing um, there are other things such as advertising that um, essentially take the decision-making process away from us rather than give us choice um, advertising tells you what you want because um, as, as it's it's been it's very clear within within the world of retail especially um, if something if something was genuinely desirable you wouldn't need to advertise it um, that we have this fake choice in society politicians keep going on and on about this choice we have we have to choose between different kinds of health care we have to choose between different kinds of toilet roll we have to choose between different colors of politicians uh, but they're all the same to be quite honest um, I mean what do you wipe your ass on to, is, is no different to what you vote for uh, to use the to use it yes before um yeah, they, don't, they don't advertise you know get friends you know yeah uh, exactly. go for a walk in the park you know have sex <laughs> that's not, no no because the, because the genuine choice is not something that's desirable in civilized society um as long as you're given this fake choice such as which party you vote for and it's made out by these parties always oh, so different we have to disagree but you don't disagree none of these major parties disagree about anything really they all want to continue civilized society they want to continue the industrial system they want to continue economic growth they want to ensure that people don't think for themselves so you don't have a choice there um, and, and it does but it gets more sinister because the moment you start deciding that you do want to make a change then forces come down to bear so for instance we have to be made scared of of the acts that we might do we're made scared of other things such as people in other countries these nasty people who are out to get us so you have to create this thing called called terrorism because it makes it makes people scared i mean it um people killing other people is is murder don't give it labels terrorism there's no such thing as terrorism if you kill someone else you, you've murdered them so if you've uh, terrorism is a political is a political tool to ensure that large numbers of people are kept scared so we have to have a war against terror um eventually if we do decide to rebel then then we're harmed and and we're this is where we come down to a police state or we come down to martial law and the final one that i talk about in times up is one that no one really expects, which is hope. And this actually came up very, very recently. Um, I was, uh, I happened to watch um, the Hunger Games. Um, my my kids are big fans of the books, and they they, they, um, they they came across them very early on when they were written. And and an interesting thing came out because I do like watching films to see what what ideas are there. There's a lot of politics under under screenplay and one thing came out and and it's it's very subtle but it's the idea that if you give someone a little hope then they're content 
they think that things are going to be all right. If you give someone too much hope, then that's dangerous to society. But I wouldn't call it too much hope. I'd call that this. I was trying to find a word for it. But in essence, a lot of hope is realisation. A lot of hope is desire for change. It's actually, you can't, if you're given hope by a religion or a, a charity or some other organisation to say, well, okay, we've got to hope that something gets better. That's a way of suppressing your desire to change. And Derek Jensen writes, writes about this very well. We, the moment we stop hoping is the moment we start doing things. And that's why hope is such a dangerous thing. Well, I look, don't... look at Obama over in the States, US president, he, his campaign, hope and change, whereas it was a lot of the former and very little of the latter. And he made me very angry. And anger is one thing that has to be suppressed in society, because if we're not angry, then then we're not going to create that level of change. So and hope is a way of suppressing anger. It's a way of suppressing change. And I I would love I would love for that word to eventually only mean what it originally meant, which is just this point at which you've done everything you can do and I just wanna yeah, let's see what happens. As far as I'm concerned, that's as good as hope gets. Any more and you're just chancing your arm to to whatever forces are out there and that's a dangerous thing. Well, as, as they say, if all you've got is hope, then you've got nothing. And mm. um, <laughs> I mean, just to draw today's conversation to a close, I think that if we, looking back, if we ignore the warnings of history, uh, where well, we do so at our peril, and there have been a lot of failed civilizations in the past. And to think that, you know, such whether you look at just recorded history, that which has been, you know, relatively well documented, or you look at the alternative history, that goes back much farther. There's evidence for not civilizations on the scale that we have globally today, but certainly large advanced civilizations that have almost completely disappeared, almost without a trace. And thinking about our situation, I think the four most dangerous words in economics come into play, and that's this time it's different. If we, if we go along with that thinking, um, as I say, I think it's, it's at a, it'll be fatal. Yeah. Yes. So, it, yeah, maybe this time it is different. But that's um, I I would say that what we're seeing now in, in terms of economic change, economic. Well, you can call it recession. You can call it you can call it stagnation. You can call it what you like. Um, we are seeing the start of some kind of collapse here. And um, I would see that as a positive thing. And We need to make the best of it. We need to realize that. This is an opportunity to create something better. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. I think that's the key message, really, um, of Time's Up. And OK, Keith, well, in conclusion, perhaps you could point the listeners to um, where they can find out about you and your writing, uh, websites, uh, blogs, um, books. So you said you've just completed a new one. And, and any future projects you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, um, well, there's. Um, most of my writing started on a blog called The Earth Blog. Well, it's not really a blog. It's it's a set of essays um, that I occasionally add to. Um, so that's theearthblog.org. Um, the book Times Up um, was originally called A Matter of Scale. Um, that is the, that is still its name in the 
pre-published version which you can download for free um, you can either go to matterofscale.com or timesupbook.com which will also take you to around the same area um, so you can if you want to buy the book then it's available in various places um, if you don't want to buy the book then just download it and read it um, there's um, there's some in, there's some useful things on something um, that's sort of still alive called the unsuited blog that's just the uns that's just unsuitablog.org um, which was all about getting rid of greenwashing but it turned into something a bit bigger and there's a lot of practical things on there that you can do and the book that I've just finished writing called Underminers that's underminers.org um, and it is now available to download and you don't have to pay a bean for it so um, I would say read Times Up first or A Matter of Scale first before you get into underminers unless you're completely sold on the idea of, of industrial civilization going in which case just dive into underminers and see what you think okay excellent Keith Farnish thank you very much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com thank you very much well that's all for this week time is indeed up as always thank you so much for listening and until next time I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com <laughs>